Let it snow with the IT Privacy and Security Weekly Update for December 14th, 2021. In a year when holiday parties are giving more than anyone bargained for in the form of new COVID variants, colds, flu, and a whole range of bacterium that we had deftly sidestepped for the better part of the last 18 months, we have lots of healthy updates for you. We start them with the VPOTUS and end with 2022 trends. In between, we touch on Androids, Canadians, and Apaches before discovering Tor blocking and that secret bottle message you threw out to see. For the holidays, we also have a couple of ideas that might help with stocking stuffers. So wrap that gift and tie that bow to the very best in IT privacy and security. We go. Our first story from Politico out of the U.S., Kamala Harris is right about Bluetooth. Last Monday, Politico led its West Wing Playbook newsletter with a report that Vice President Kamala Harris is Bluetooth-phobic and insists on using wired headphones because of the risks associated with the decades-old wireless standard. It's presented as a misguided quirk, but she's actually right. Wired headphones are safer. Bluetooth connections can be exploited. A Bluetooth connection can be hacked, allowing cybercriminals to take control of the device. They can even put malware or spyware on your device to spy on you. Bluetooth has been used by cybersecurity researchers to exploit security flaws in some phones. They then extracted data, including business credentials, from that system. According to many academics and other journalists, Harris's fears about the security hazards posed by Bluetooth technology were well-founded. Given the political and security risks, Harris is probably wise to turn off her Bluetooth connection. A person's vulnerability is proportional to the value of their data. Those who retain their business and personal data on the same device, however, should use even more caution. So, what's the upshot for you? You got it straight from the Veep. If you aren't using your Bluetooth, turn it off. Our next global story comes to us from Wired, new Android 12 privacy settings. Android 12 introduced a privacy dashboard to help increase permissions transparency. This shows which apps have accessed the sensors on your phone in the last 24 hours and allows you to deny them further access. It's a straightforward way to see which apps are doing what on your phone. Go to Settings, Privacy, and then open up the Privacy Dashboard. When an Android app is using your phone's microphone or camera, a small green dot will now appear in the top menu bar, similar to a feature Apple added in last year's iOS 14 release. Swiping down from the top corner of the screen opens the quick settings menu where you can turn the app's camera and microphone access off instantly. While that block is temporary, you can enter the individual app's permissions from here and make the change permanent. Your phone has its own advertising ID that allows apps to link data to your device, building up a profile of you and your interests, so it can then show you personalized ads based on this information. You can now alter your settings to reset the string of numbers identifying you to a series of zeros and stop third parties from linking any information to your device in this way. So, what's the upshot for you? Perhaps the two biggest things you can do to protect your device, data, and accounts, regardless of what operating system you're on, are ensuring you're using a password manager to create and store unique logins for every account you use and making sure multi-factor authentication is turned on wherever you can. Our next story out of Canada from the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity. 
Canadians' cyber attacks have hit infrastructure the hardest. Small and medium-sized businesses accounted for two-thirds of Canadian organizations victimized by cyber hijackers leaking their sensitive data publicly as blackmail to force ransom payments during the period January 1st, 2020 to June 30th, 2020. Since March 2020, nearly 25% of Canadian small businesses have experienced some type of malware attack. That figure is likely higher than reported, officials said. In Canada, the estimated average cost of a data breach is a compromise that includes, but is not limited to ransomware, and is about Canadian $6.35 million. By the center's figures, the global average total cost of recovery from a ransomware incident, the cost of paying the ransom and or remediating the compromised network, more than doubled to Canadian $2.3 million in 2021 from Canadian $970,000 in 2020. Worldwide, while known ransom payments increased from 2019 to 2020, the demand amounts appear to have stabilized at roughly 200000 in 2021. So what's the upshot for you? Well, it's not just us. The Canadian Royal Mounted Police are dealing with this too. Our next story is global. The Log4J or Log4Shell updates. This one's a big one, so bear with us. What happened? A zero-day exploit was released for Log4j, a Java-based logging utility that's part of the Apache Logging Services Project. It's used by millions of systems worldwide to process logs. What's the impact? Well, people are comparing this to Heartbleed, but it's much worse in a number of ways. While Heartbleed affected all TLS implementations, and this one only affects systems that use Log4j... This issue produces direct and immediate harm in the form of password key extractions and shells. This vulnerability will be with us for years because of malicious payloads and vulnerable systems can sit dormant for any amount of time. At any moment, they can come back alive and process a malicious payload that results in compromise. How does it work? Well, the vulnerability is due to insecure lookup functionality within Log4j that executes user-provided content as code, known as RCE. So if you provide the input $environment-password, it'll write the password environment variable to the log. It gets much worse from there, though, including the egressing of data out of the affected system and, most importantly, spawning a shell on the affected system. What do you do? Well, the best way to fix this is to find all your instances of Log4j and patch them. Uh, But good luck with that one. Also note that a WAF, Web Application Firewall, can help but won't solve the problem. Most companies' back-end systems are already clogged with these malicious payloads from multiple ingress points. We can't fix the problem by stopping more from coming in. The only fix is securing the systems that will inevitably come in contact with that malicious input. Analysis. So what's so remarkable about this vulnerability is not just its criticality or reach, but the root cause at the developer incentives level. Like Hartley, the project had very few eyes on it, and all those eyes were volunteers. What we should be thinking about isn't just Log4j. What we should be thinking about is how many other projects out there have similar characteristics. The project's maintained by very few people in their spare time for no money. And if the project had a major issue, it would disrupt the entire internet. We simply have too much critical internet infrastructure maintained by a handful of people in their spare time. And those few people are often not able or incentivized to evaluate what they're creating from a security standpoint. This isn't their fault. They're heroes for just keeping the lights on. Here's why this risk is so unique. It's a remotely exploitable vulnerability, which gives an attacker privileged access to and possibly even full control of the compromised system. As the sample exploit code highlights, it's 
extremely easy to exploit and can happen over a ton of different attack vectors. Unlike most vulnerabilities, which require very specific conditions to be met, Log4Shell is as broad as they get. Log4Shell is pervasive. It's all over our infrastructure and ubiquitously used in all manner of applications. In infrastructure, you can find it and fix it if you're diligent. If you're using applications that are developed using Log4J, you have to wait for updates from those vendors before you can fix your systems and use them safely. Simply put, we will be living with this problem for a long time. Log4J exploits run in Java. Let that sink in for a moment. What it means is that it's the perfect payload, portable across industrial heavy equipment, network servers, down to printers, and even your kid's Raspberry Pi. And lastly, the systems don't even have to be internet-facing or accessible to be compromised. Consider web or email systems, which might log activity and then periodically ship those logs internally for processing and analysis on an internal logging server. Boom! Your internal systems are compromised. So, what's the upshot for you? Forbes' Amit Yoram sums it up like this. Now, as frequently happens, just about every security vendor will sweep in with their aggressively worded marketing spin. If you buy our product and deploy it, you would have been or will be safe. Let me be clear. No single product that I've come across in the entirety of my career will, in fact, keep you fully safe from this issue. No next-gen firewall, no web application firewall, no endpoint detection and response, no identity management solution, no operational technology product, or anything else will stop log for shell There's been a lot of talk lately about Web3. So... Our next story is global. Why crypto fans are going wild over a blockchain-based internet idea. There are a few fundamental differences between Web 2 and Web 3, but decentralization is at its core. Web 3 enhances the internet as we know it today with a few other added characteristics. Web 3 is verifiable, trustless, self-governing, permissionless, distributed and robust, stateful, native, built-in payments. In Web3, developers don't usually build and deploy applications that run on a single server or that store their data in a single database, usually hosted on and managed by a single cloud provider. Instead, Web3 applications either run on blockchains, decentralized networks of many peer-to-peer -peer nodes or servers, or a combination of the two that forms a crypto-economic protocol. These apps are often referred to as dApps, decentralized apps, and you'll see that term used often in the Web3 space. To achieve a stable and secure decentralized network, network participants, developers, are incentivized and compete to provide the highest quality services to anyone using the service. When you hear about Web3, you'll notice that cryptocurrency is often part of the conversation. This is because cryptocurrency plays a big role in many of these protocols. It provides a financial incentive, tokens, for anyone who wants to participate in creating, governing, contributing to, or improving one of the projects themselves. So, what's the upshot for you? Twitter is already exploring ways to add Web3 features to its app. Yet scaling the infrastructure needed for the fully-fledged version could take decades. Even the largest blockchains are currently too small to handle all transactions that happen on Web2. Web3's best-case scenario could be existing alongside big tech platforms, not replacing them. Our next U.S.-Chinese story comes to us from The Verge. Inside Tim Cook's secret $275 billion deal with Chinese authorities. Apple's iPhone recently became the top-selling smartphone in China, its second biggest market after the U.S. for the first time in six years. 
but the company owes much of that success to CEO Tim Cook, who laid the foundation years ago by secretly signing an agreement estimated to be worth more than $275 billion, with Chinese officials promising Apple would do its part to develop China's economy and technological prowess through investments, business deals, and worker training. Cook forged the five-year agreement, which hasn't been previously reported during the first of a series of in-person visits he made to the country in 2016 to quash a sudden burst of regulatory actions against Apple's business, according to internal Apple documents. Before the meetings, Apple executives were scrambling to salvage the company's relationship with Chinese officials who believed the company wasn't contributing enough to the local economy, the documents show. Amid the government crackdown and the bad publicity that accompanied it, iPhone sales plummeted. So, what's the upshot for you? A 1,250-word Memorandum of Understanding, or MAO, between Apple and China's National Development and Reform Commission reportedly runs for five years and accounted for $275 billion in spending, and the agreement includes a request Apple reportedly received in 2014 or 2015 about a small group of uninhabited islands that China and Japan apparently have a dispute over in terms of who owns them. Going by either the Senkaku Islands or the Dayo Islands, depending on which side of the argument you're taking, they inspired a request from China to members of the MAPS team to make them appear larger, even when viewers are zoomed out on the map. According to the information, not only did Apple eventually make the change, but even today, for viewers using its map from within China, the islands are still shown at a larger scale than the territories around them. From MarketsBusinessLeader.com, a global story. 90% of all Bitcoins have now been mined, but the remaining 10% will take over 100 years to reach open market. As of Monday, 90% of all Bitcoins have been mined, according to data from Blockchain.com, 12 years after miners acquired the first ever Bitcoins. That means about 18.9 million coins out of the maximum supply of 21 million are now on the open market. But mining the final 10% isn't expected to happen until February 2140, based on network estimates and Bitcoin halving schedules, Coindesk reported. Bitcoin halving, which happens approximately every four years, is when the number of new Bitcoins entering circulation shrinks. The halving process will continue to make mining more challenging. Right now, miners receive about 6.25 Bitcoin for every mined block. But this will drop by half in 2024. Meanwhile, an estimated 20% of Bitcoin has been lost, meaning they can't be retrieved. So it remains unlikely the open market ever sees a full 21 million coins in circulation. So, what's the upshot for you? Well, some might consider this BTC dip as the perfect opportunity for a few more stocking stuffers. From spglobal.com, our next story out of the U.S. Aging medical devices open up healthcare to cyber attacks. Age can be a major vulnerability in medical devices. Some can have lifespans of decades, during which time software can go out of date and the companies may stop releasing patches to strengthen their security. If Microsoft has terminated patches and updates for Windows after 10 years in existence, who is going to patch or how are we going to manage that device, which has got another 10 or 15 years of life? The hospitals find it unjustifiable to change the device. It's a major capital investment. One of the most effective weapons in a healthcare system's cyber defense strategy is asset management, the process of keeping track of every IT-related device across an organization and assessing potential gaps in security, such as outdated software. 
Different pieces of healthcare organizations' IT landscape may have been added or removed over decades, meaning it can be difficult for a new IT manager to get to grips with the vast system. It's unlikely a cyber adversary will hack a device in order to intentionally interfere with a patient's insulin dose or pacemaker, said Macmillan, CEO and co-founder of cybersecurity consulting firm Synergist Tech, Incorporated. Injuring or killing somebody by hacking their medical device will attract far more attention from law enforcement for minimal gain. Hackers are much more likely to see greater benefit in disruptive attacks, such as using a medical device as a jumping-off point to breach the company's network, Macmillan said. Through this method of attack, criminals are able to extort more money from a health system by holding onto patient data or disrupting internet systems than they would by intentionally hurting people. So what's the upshot for you? Well, this is an all-too-evident malaise as healthcare providers become easy targets for miscreants. Your local hospital isn't running Windows 7 because it wants to. It's because budgeting has put saving lives over tech refreshes. Now it seems that tech refreshes could be saving lives. Our next story from Wired magazine. Russia's internet censorship machine is going after Tor. At the start of December, the Tor project's support email inbox began receiving an unusual number of messages from users saying they were encountering problems accessing the digital anonymity service. It was not just one or two, but like 10 people asking, says Gustavo Gus, community team lead of the Tor project. At the same time, staff at the Open Observatory of Network Interference, which measures and tracks internet censorship, saw indications that suggested Russian internet service providers, or ISPs, were blocking the Tor network. What happened at the start of December, though those in the Tor project didn't know it yet, was significant. Roskomnadzor, the Russian media and telecommunications regulator, had issued a demand to ISPs around Russia to block users' access to Tor's website. In Russia's world of decentralized internet infrastructure, ISPs began taking action speedily, and access to parts of the Tor network itself was limited. The situation was messy, but it all added up to one conclusion. Something was up. We realized on December 2nd or 3rd that Tor was being blocked, says Gus. The Tor project began contacting reliable contacts in Russia and those outside the country to understand more. Slowly, the project began putting together the pieces of the puzzle, identifying what was going on. The final piece slotted into place on December 6th when the project received an email purporting to be from Roskomnadzor saying that the Tor project domain would be blocked. At first, some of us thought it was a spam email, admits Gus. We didn't think it was a real communication from the government. But it was. Tor Project Org had been added to Roskomnadzor's blocked list. So, what's the upshot for you? Perhaps this goes some way in helping us understand last week's article on the large numbers of mysterious identified Tor nodes that surface and disappear after handling large percentages of Tor traffic. Our next story is Australian and comes to us from Seclist.org. Chinese cyber attack almost shut off power for 3 million Australians. Chinese hackers came within minutes of shutting off power to 3 million Australian homes, but were thwarted at the final hurdle. A successful attack would knock out power to between 1.4 million and 3 million homes with no way of knowing how long it might take to regain control of the generators. CS Energy quickly realized the cyber attackers were trying to bypass their internal corporate systems to access the generators that circulate 3,500 megawatts of electricity onto the grid. 
IT specialists came up with a brilliant last-minute move to stop Beijing from gaining access by separating the company's corporate and operational computer systems. Once the network was essentially cut in half, hackers had no way of seizing control of the generators. Sources with knowledge of the hack attempt said the cyber attackers were less than 30 minutes away from shutting down all the power. So, what's the upshot for you? Recently, Microsoft announced it disrupted the activities of a China-based hacking group that we call Nickel, which carried out attacks in the U.S. and 28 other countries. We believe these attacks were largely being used for intelligence gathering from governmental agencies, think tanks, and human rights organizations, the software giant said. Last month, China targeted Indian utilities and infrastructure sites with cyber attacks also trying to shut down a coal-fired power plant. Taiwanese officials said their small democratic nation just 180 kilometers off the coast of China receives up to 5 million attacks per day, with the vast majority likely to be directed by Beijing. We see a pattern here. Our next story comes to us out of Brazil from Reuters. Brazil Health Ministry website hit by hackers. Vaccination data targeted. Brazil's government delayed new pandemic-related requirements for travelers entering the country after a hack of its health ministry early Friday morning. The agency said on its website that several of its systems had been knocked offline by the attack, including those that issued digital vaccine cards and track the country's national immunization program. The statement said that the attack had temporarily compromised some of its systems and that they were unavailable. A ransomware gang known as Lapsus Dollar Sign Group took credit for the attack on Friday, boasting that it stole and deleted about 50 terabytes of data from the Ministry of Health Systems. Contact us if you want your data back, the group said in its ransom note with email and telegram details. The agency told reporters on Friday that it has backups of all the data that was deleted by the hackers. So, what's the upshot for you? Well, if you're traveling and unvaccinated, Travel quickly. The five-day quarantine for unvaccinated visitors is to be postponed for a week while the vaccine data is restored. Our next global story comes to us from Ars Technica. Google is building a new augmented reality device and operating system. Google was one of the early leaders in the first wave of modern augmented reality research and devices. But as the company has appeared to cool on augmented reality, or AR, in recent years, even as Apple and Facebook have invested heavily in it. But it looks like the trend will soon be reversed. On LinkedIn, operating system engineer director Mark Lukowski announced that he has joined Google. He previously headed up mixed reality operating system work for Meta, and before that, he was one of the key architects of Windows NT at Microsoft. My role is to lead the operating system team for augmented reality at Google, he wrote. He also posted a link to some job listings at Google that give the impression Google is getting just as serious about AR as Apple or Meta. So, what's the upshot for you? Advertised job roles are largely in the U.S., but some are located in Waterloo, Ontario, the headquarters of Canadian smart glasses maker North, which Google acquired in 2020. Our question is, will anyone find any privacy in the meta with Facebook, Google, and others piling in? Ooh, and our next meta story comes to us from Ars Technica. Woman lost at Metaverse Instagram handle days after Facebook name change. Thea May Bauman had posted to Instagram using the at Metaverse handle for nearly a decade when her account was disabled on November 2nd. Your account has been blocked for pretending to be someone else, the app told her. 
Bauman wasn't exactly sure what had happened, but the time was curious. The account block came just days after Facebook had announced its new name, Meta. CEO Mark Zuckerberg said the name reflected the company's new focus on its vision of the metaverse, a virtual world meant to facilitate commerce, communication, and more. Bauman's at Metaverse handle was suddenly a hot commodity. This account is a decade of my life and work. I didn't want my contribution to the metaverse to be wiped from the internet, Bauman told the New York Times. That happens to women in tech, to women of color in tech, all the time. The Australian had created an app that would display virtual holograms over her company's fingernail designs. She envisaged making an entire line of clothing and accessories that would be virtually augmented. After five years, funding ran dry and she began to use her Instagram account to promote her other work. Bauman's at Metaverse account went relatively unnoticed over the years, attracting fewer than a thousand followers. Then Facebook changed its name. So what's the upshot for you? It's unclear whether Meta Facebook had anything to do with Bauman losing her access to her account. Bauman attempted to verify her identity with Instagram, but she didn't receive a reply for weeks. She tried working with an intellectual property attorney to see what rights she had to get her account back, but she couldn't afford their services. Once a journalist got wind of the story, though, things changed. On December 4th, two days after a New York Times reporter contacted Meta about the account, Bauman suddenly regained access to at Metaverse. Our next story from the UK and Forbes. All is not right in the house of the high IQ. Mensa, the Society for People with High IQs, has paid damages to a former director it accused of being responsible for an embarrassing data leak. The Mensa website was hacked in January this year, resulting in the theft of personal information from the society's 18,000 members. Eugene Hopkinson, a former director and technology officer at British Mensa, stood down from the society in the wake of the attack, claiming it had failed to properly secure members' passwords. Lots of members' personal information was reported to have been published online, including transcripts of online chats and the IQ scores of current and failed applicants. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, Mensa tried to claim that no personal information had been accessed before acknowledging a breach, and then suggested that some personal data of our members was deliberately put into the public domain. In subsequent communications to its members, Mensa then tried to pin the blame for the breach on Hopkinson, suggesting he was personally involved in the attacks. Hopkinson subsequently sued Mensa for libel. So, what's the upshot for you? On the basis of the evidence currently available to us, British Mensa accepts that there is insufficient evidence to reach the criminal standard of proof that Mr. Hopkinson was responsible for either the cyber attack or the subsequent data disclosure. Legal action between Mr. Hopkinson and British Mensa Limited has now been resolved and we will be making no further comment. For commercial reasons, British Mensa's insurers recommended that the claim was settled out of court. Our next story is global and comes to us from M Bio. It's not private. I wrote it on a plastic bottle. You've probably heard about all the plastic garbage that washes out of rivers and into oceans. You've probably also heard that a plastic island the size of Texas is floating somewhere out in the middle of the Pacific. It's not actually true, as if it were, you'd probably already have real estate developers putting hotels on it or Kevin Costner filming a Waterworld sequel there. You've probably heard that microplastics are turning up in our water, our air, and even in the virgin snows of the Arctic and Antarctic. 
Right now, we have no idea what the long-term effect will be on plants, animals, and us. So you may be interested to learn that microbes in oceans and soils across the globe are evolving to eat plastic. The research scanned more than 200 million genes found in DNA samples taken from the environment and found 30,000 different enzymes that could degrade 10 different types of plastic. The study is the first large-scale global assessment of the plastic-degrading potential of bacteria and found that one in four of the organisms analyzed carried a suitable enzyme. The researchers found that the number and type of enzymes they discovered matched the amount and type of plastic pollution in different locations. The results provide evidence of a measurable effect of plastic pollution on the global microbial ecology, the scientists said. Millions of tons of plastic are dumped into the environment every year, and the pollution now pervades the planet, from the summit of Mount Everest to the deepest oceans. Reducing the amount of plastic used is vital, as is the proper collection and treatment of waste. So, what's the upshot for you? Utilization of synthetic biology approaches to enhance current plastic degradation processes is of crucial importance as natural plastic degradation processes are very slow. Take, for example, a plastic soda bottle. That can take almost 50 years to biodegrade, releasing methane into the atmosphere as it degrades. Methane is bad for the ozone layer. So yes, message in the bottle or on the bottle, no, no privacy there. It's going to be around for a long time. Our last story comes to us from Pinterest. Pinterest predicts 2022. Thanks to its massive trove of data, Pinterest knows that tooth gem searches were up 85% over the past year and crystal eye makeup searches doubled. The anonymized data is still not being used, at least by Pinterest, for revenue generation. But that could change soon enough. Pinterest trends predictions for next year include pearl core, dopamine dressing, architecture, and lounge eerie but we didn't see any predictions about next year's cyber attacks. Pinterest said that 80% of its predictions last year ended up trending this year. So, need gift-giving ideas for the holidays? This might be a good place to look for inspiration. So what's the upshot for you? What's an interest now could be a trend in a year. That's it for this week. Throw one more log on the fire. Well, unless you, like us, are getting hit with another highly unseasonable heat wave. Be kind, stay safe, stay secure, let it snow, and we'll see you in seven. Let it snow. Let it snow.